there, and welcome to episode 57 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your smart and heart host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. With this episode, we are about halfway through season five. We are on episode 12. The clock struck 12. I'm also going to give a mild trigger warning for mentions of sexual assault, both in the episode and in the discussion. And for funsies, I'm also going to do a season 5 episode of the Hawaii Five-O reboot, the 2010 Hawaii Five-O. Uh, it's episode 6, Ho'oma'ike, and it's their Halloween episode for that season, because I've been dying to do one. So, let's go to Hawaii. difference between this dummy bomb and the real thing is that we used a pin light set to go off at noon instead of half a dozen sticks of dynamite. One of your men placed it here? Yeah. One of our plainclothes officers with demolition training. Crude, homemade, but efficient. Could have put this entire balcony area right down there on the floor. Blasted these offices into rubble and undermined the stairwell support. All it takes to know the vital parts is a one dollar blueprint from city planning, and anybody can get one. Anyone can, Steve. And someone just may, if they haven't already. Here, add this to your collection. Another one. Thanks, number five. Same common stationery. Same typewriter peculiarities. In the name of the people, this is your last warning. Free the seven. If you attempt to prosecute them, we will destroy the courthouse. The life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. Season 5, Episode 12, The Clock Struck 12. Air date December 5th, 1972, directed by Ron Winston. This is his fourth of four episodes. Story by our beloved creator, Leonard Freeman, and teleplay by Anthony Lawrence. This is his eighth of nine episodes. Outside of the courthouse, people are picketing, demanding the release of the Seven, a group of men who are being charged with arson and sexual assault after going full ham on a hippie commune. A redhead with a briefcase passes the protesters and enters the courthouse. He goes into one of the courtrooms, but only stays a minute before leaving his ticking briefcase behind. Elsewhere, other bombs are planted in various locations, including water fountains, paper towel dispensers, and access panels. At 5-0 headquarters, the clock strikes 12. Boom. It turns out that these bombs were all part of a 5-0 demonstration showing how easy it would be to plant the bombs in strategic places. The governor has been receiving bomb threats from someone who wants the seven freed or they will bomb the courthouse. The governor wants maximum security for the courthouse, but since it was built before the turn of the century, it won't be easy. It just wasn't designed for it. Steve goes to the hospital to see a young woman from the commune named Marianne. She's finally conscious after four days, and she's in bad shape. 
She said the men who did this to her left notes at the commune first, and she knew two of them because they worked at the gas station up the road. She identifies them as Iko and Billy Thomas before dying. Marianne named the sixth and seventh members of the seven in a deathbed confession, which adds a murder charge. Steve relays this to the seven in jail, but they're not impressed. It's not their fault that they, these hippies have moved in and are trying to take over Hawaii and turn it into a drug scene. They were just defending their land. Steve lets them know that they can help themselves by giving him the name of the person behind the bomb threats because nobody is going to stop the due process of law. Some guy is rallying the protesters about the seven, saying they won't get a fair trial and that they're only trying to defend their land from the freaks. Abraham Malaya, his brother David, and his buddy Samuel break away from the listeners, and while Abraham and Samuel slip into an authorized personnel-only shed and help themselves from some explosives, David picks up some alarm clocks. While Steve and the rest of 5 go over the security measures and procedures, bolted doors, guard dogs, guards, searches, Abraham, David, and Samuel put together their bombs. Once they get them packaged up, they take them along with a rifle and load them up in the van, telling Dad they're off to go bowling or some shit. Steve assures the governor that 5 has done all it can, but that doesn't make the courthouse bombproof. The governor says, neat, test the security with 5 Sure. Steve sets up the security and then sends in 5 to break it. This requires an apparently drunken car accident diversion that allows Danny and Ben to climb up to the second floor and get in. They split up to set their fake bombs. Ben nearly gets caught, but hides, the guard missing him. Danny has a closer call, knocking over a box as he hides behind them. The guards don't seem to think it's out of the ordinary to find a box just lying in the aisle, though, and just throws it back on the pile and moves along. Once out of sight, Danny goes off to find his bomb site, only to find an actual bomb. While Steve directs a team to search the building inch by inch, top to bottom, he joins Che, Danny, and Duke at the first bomb. The digital clock attached to the bomb means it could have been set long before they set up their security. The way it's set up and wired, they're going to have to be very careful removing it. With a trial set to start at 9 a.m. and the bomb they know about set to go off at 8 a.m., they don't have much time. Okay, let me get my issues with this episode out of the way first. So, first of all, apparently hippies can't catch a break. Nobody likes hippies, not even the native Hawaiians. And this crime was apparently committed. So they, they what they did was they burned a hippie commune that had been set up and sexually assaulted at least one woman involved. And she later dies from her burn injuries. And they're using this as an excuse saying that they're only defending their land from the freaks. I have multiple problems with this. One, the demonization of hippies is some played out shit. They represent an opposition to the status quo and what police procedurals, police dramas like to do is uphold the status quo. So they're the easiest marks against that. We also have the Hawaiian separatists. Now there is a movement in which the Hawaiians want to take their land back. If you look into history, you will find that Hawaii was illegally annexed by the United States back in the long, long ago. They imprisoned their queen, did all sorts of really underhanded shit to get this land. So there is a legitimate movement of the Hawaiians wanting to take their land back and defending their land. And we have seen that. 
in previous episodes, and they are almost always going up against land developers, the Howleys, rich white people, that sort of thing. And that movement actually continues today. The fires that devastated Lahaina on Maui, you immediately had real estate developers trying to swoop in and buy that land from the people who lost their homes so they could develop it. That's the kind of shit that still continues to this day. So there is a valid movement. However, this episode sort of demonizes that movement. And we see that a little bit with the other episodes when they're like, yes, but look, they're damaging property. And usually there's murder involved. But property damage actually is part and parcel for nonviolent movements. We consider property damage to be violent because we live in a society in which the police, that is their job, is to defend property, not people. So we've seen a little bit of that. But in this case, they went full ham on the violence to show just how ridiculous this movement is and how violent and awful this movement is about defending their land. The thing is, is that it doesn't play well. If they had put it up against land developers, it would make much more sense than a hippie commune. When one of the seven, I think it's Aiko, is in the cell going off about how he doesn't vow these freaks are moving in. They want to turn Hawaii into a, a drug scene. We are just going to never mind all of the episodes we've seen previous to this in which there's numerous a number of mobs who are pushing drugs on the island. And most of them are, are rich white men. We're just going to ignore that. Um, but he, he's saying that they were going to turn this into a drug scene. And they and another one of the, the guys, the protester who is riling up the other protesters, is talking about they're protecting them from the freaks. This is uptight white men speak. And I can't really speak for Native Hawaiians, but just the idea that they would be uptight about hippies that are coming in to live in a commune and sort of do their own thing and live off the land because that's what hippie communes do. Are there drugs involved? Yeah, but it's mostly for personal use. They're not pushing to other people. But this idea that they would be that uptight when down the road, some real estate developer is probably bulldozing a sacred site so he can put up a hotel. I just don't, I don't buy it. And I find it sort of as a way to undermine those particular protests. Now, if the writers were attempting to show that these sorts of movements can be undermined by people taking advantage of them and using them for nefarious purposes, I could get on board with that. It's just, that's just not made clear to me. I will say also that the protester does make a valid point that these men would be found guilty before they even went before the judge because of their association with this movement and because they're Native Hawaiians, there's actually truth to that. But they turn out to be like total shitheads and Steve has the proof of that. So I just have some issues with what we are using as the foundation for all of this. But outside of that, it's actually a pretty decent episode because it's not what you think it's going to be. They are obviously looking for, Fido was looking for this bomber who's been sending bomb threats to the governor. And you, you think there's going to be more investigation throughout the episode, but really there's just like this one little blip towards the beginning with Danny and Che 
discussing the typewriter that the typewriter that was used has very specific characteristics and it was but other than that could be from the 1930s I mean, it's a common model it just had some very unique characteristics and you think there's going to be more to that but then we go this whole thing we're kind of sidetracked with we need to bomb proof this building that can't be bomb proofed and they go through the whole motions of setting up all of the security and they set up very strict security measures so we're talking you know, all entrances to be sealed off except the main entrance here on king street this will be central control no one to be cleared through here without a personal search no one understand and of course a thorough search of all packages briefcases anything hand carried that's self-evident Jack. steve about sealing the doors you don't mean just locked do you it's not too hard to jimmy them yeah and anybody who's really serious about getting in just might, so steel bolts. And on all the ground level windows as well, okay? No, I want watch points. Here, here, and here. Eight hour shifts around the clock. Offices to be supplied with riot guns. And radio communications to Central here and to 5 Steve, I'd like to use guard dogs. Yeah, it's a good idea. From dawn till dusk, at all entrances. Rough one, Steve. Tab a lot of manpower. Anybody got a better way? They're going full ham. And the governor is like, hey, that sounds great. Let's test it. And Steve is like, do you understand that I have instructed all of these guards to stop it? Like, stop it, stop it. He's pretty much trying to say they have orders to shoot to kill without saying they have orders to shoot to kill. Oh, I, I know it could be dangerous, but uh, I think it's got to be done. And you want me to prove that 5-0 is, is fallible? Just better you to prove it than the man with the bomb. After all, there's always the possibility that at night, undercover, somebody might. Sure, somebody might. Anything is possible. Steve, if there is a flaw in that security system, plug it now. He is just so casual and so blasé about the fact that 5-0 could get their ass handed to them. But he makes a valid point. If there is a problem with the Syria, they need to figure it out before this trial goes in effect. And so a big part of the episode is actually spent testing this security. And it's great because they get a guy, Steve apparently knows a dude, who knows how to pretend to be inebriated and wreck a car to such an extent that it catches on fire, but not hurt himself. Steve has the most interesting friends. He truly does. And so, because Steve knows all of the ins and outs of the security, he put, he put it together. He says, everything has to happen in this very specific time frame at like one o'clock in the morning. And so they set this off. So a big part of what we end up watching is the testing of the security and the ultimate discovery of the bombs and the defusing of the bombs. The investigation part then comes in after the fact where they're trying to track down the dynamite and the alarm clocks and the components of the bombs and trying to figure out who they can link that to. So if you're expecting a typical episode in which we are going to have these investigative elements, it, it's very much so different. It's, it's been shook up. What's great about this is that we know bombs have been created because we have seen Abraham and his brother David and their friend Samuel going about doing this. So we've seen them. They're at the one protest rally where that guy is rallying everybody. They slip off. Abraham and Samuel go and, and get the dynamite from what later turns out to be Abraham's work. 
David goes and gets the alarm clocks and we see them put together these bombs. And we see them take the bombs, put them in a van along with a rifle. Stop for? Well, you just never know who you're going to run into. And as they're leaving, their dad's like, where are you going? And he's just like, yeah, we're going bowling. Some shit like that. Doesn't really investigate it. Now, I'm glad that they made a point later of explaining that Abraham is 34 years old. Because if they were going to try to pass this dude off as a 22-year-old disillusioned college student, we were going to have a problem because I've al- he's already been on the show once. Abraham is played by Manu Tupo, and we have already seen him previously as a full-grown mob boss. So thank you for the clarification that he, that we are not going to try to pass him off as, as some young person. Now, David obviously is. David is obviously younger. He's played by Patrick ADRT, who was Hojan on MASH. So... There's obviously big age difference. And then you have Samuel who you're not going to see people who look like him on television anymore because he's not necessarily an attractive man. He has an interesting looking face. And he's probably about the same age, in the vicinity of the same age as what Abraham is supposed to be. But nobody casts people who look like him anymore. And that's what makes him so special. Anyway, so we see them transport these bombs or put them in the van To our knowledge, we don't know that they have planted these bombs until 5.0 is testing the security system. And it's great because this drunken car accident diversion goes off without a hitch. The dude is not hurt. The car is in flames. The guards are successfully distracted. So Ben and Danny are able to do a full Batman throwing up a grappling hook and climbing up this this side of this building. It's like the second floor. And they split up to set their bombs. And Ben, I think, goes upstairs and Danny, I know, goes downstairs. He goes to the basement. Ben nearly gets caught setting his. He's in an office, it looks like. And he just ducks out of camera frame, basically. He just hides in the dark. The guard just opens the door, sweeps with his flashlight, shuts it, and leaves. Ben comes right back out and continues doing what he was doing. Danny has a closer call because Danny goes downstairs in the basement. He hears the guards coming. He goes to hide behind this big ass stack of boxes and knocks a very empty box off. I don't know why the courthouse needs this fire hazard, but you know, whatever. He knocks a box off into the aisle and these two guards, whom I love, come downstairs and they just see the box that are sitting there and they pick it up. They're chatting the whole time and one of them picks up the box, looks at it and goes, I guess figuring because it was empty, it was just like, oh yeah, this just fall off and threw it up back on the stack and they just continue on their way. These guards are not guarding to Steve McGarrett's standards, I feel. But anyway, Danny comes out. He's looking for a place to set his bomb and finds a bomb already set. So that's when we come to understand that Abraham and friends have already been there. We get probably 10 to 15 minutes intercut with other stuff of Danny defusing this bomb and then a subsequent bomb that is found later. Here's the thing. Why is Danny doing it and not Bomb Squad? I don't know. I think that's just narrative tension that calls for it. But suddenly Danny is very versed in how bombs work and he is going to defuse this bad boy. And he does it without any kind of protective gear. So that's how you know he's a pro. The bomb is basically placed up on on some pipes, so he has to climb up to defuse this bomb. And it is wrapped to the pipe with wiring. There's a mousetrap involved. Abraham did not mess around when he made this bomb. 
there are a lot of ways that Danny could unintentionally set this sucker off. So while Steve is having the rest of 5 so Chin and Ben and Duke are running down serial numbers on the dynamite. They're running down where the clocks might have come from. They're tracing where the dynamite shipment would have gone. While they're all doing that, Danny is in there diffusing this bomb with Che outside talking to him via radio. Che? Yeah, Dan. Your secondary fuse wires, all right. Getting a strong reading. What kind of a backup device do you think it's got? Could be a release of pressure detonator. Where? Underneath, I think. Pressure of the bomb along the base, keeping it cocked. Can you tell for sure? No. I see a heavy-duty spring above the clock. But to be sure, I'm going to need a piece of cardboard. Four inches by four inches, quarter-inch thick piece of wood six inches long uh, quarter inch by quarter inch make sure the uh, all sides are sanded smooth put a few drops of lubricating oil on it and a small v notch at one end got it and what's really great about that aside from the fact that we are playing very much with the tension of danny and che working together albeit remotely to defuse this bomb is that the clock that's used is a digital clock. Now, every other clock that they usually use is an analog clock, and I have no idea how that works in setting off bombs, but you just it says tick, 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 boom. With the digital clock, you are told this bomb is set to go off at 8 o'clock in the morning, so before the trial is set to start. And from the sounds of it, it's actually supposed to go off before anybody is in the building. So they're actually, they're just trying to prevent the trial from happening, which I think is ridiculous because you could literally have a trial anywhere. It doesn't have to be in a courthouse. You could do it at the local 7-Eleven if you need to. It would definitely get things delayed. But it sounds like they're doing this for the purpose of destroying the building and not killing anybody inside. So there's this idea that there will be few people if any, inside the building. But we know that it's supposed to go off at 8 o'clock. So we get to watch, as Danny is working on this bomb, the time ticking by. And so you can see on the clock, it's like 1.30, and then at one point it's, I think, 3-something, and then it's like 4-something. So he is taking a lot of time to work on this bomb. And when he finally gets it diffused, there is a brief moment of relief as he passes it off to another officer when another officer comes up and says, oh, hey, we found another one. Sorry about your luck. Meanwhile, Abraham's group is kind of falling apart. David has second thoughts. He tries to call the police in the middle of the night, but Abraham stops him. He says, I knew you would we- you were weak. I knew you would tra- be a traitor. I can't have you talking. And he takes him out of the house, making sure to shut the door quietly so the parents aren't aware of this. His parents are magnificent, by the way. He takes him out of the house and you think, holy shit, he's going to do something bad to David. Spoiler alert, David is okay. He's tied up in a garage, but other than that, he's okay. And you understand that when later Abraham and Samuel go to the roof of a building, I think across the street from the courthouse so they can observe their handiwork and they see the bomb truck pulled up in front of the front doors and it's this realization that they found the bombs and Abraham says if they can if they can get them out from where he's set them up, 
they're going to have to bring them outside. They may be diffused, but they are still dynamite. He says, they'll be walking slow. It'll only take one shot. And he brings out the rifle. And that's when Samuel decides to nope out. He goes, because because basically he won't be able to escape. That is the whole point. He's like, I'm fine with blowing shit up, but I need an out. And again, you think that something bad might happen to Samuel. I mean, Abraham has a rifle right there. He could have hit him in the back of the head with the butt of the rifle and taken him out instead of letting him leave. But he lets him leave. And so when you find David alive, it all makes sense that he's okay with blowing up some cops, I suppose. But he's, I guess, got a soft spot for his brother and for his friend that he's not going to harm them. It's just interesting to me. It's just an interesting bit of complexity to this character that you don't expect. You expect him to be ruthless. You expect him to take out his brother and take out his friend. So his plans will not be interrupted. And he just sidelines his brother. Eventually, his parents are going to find him in the garage, I would hope. And his brother's going to think on him. But I guess he figures by that point, it's fine because the courthouse will be blown up and he doesn't mind going to jail for his cause. So... Samuel departs Abraham's company, and so inside, Danny is now working to defuse the second bomb. And even if Danny gets that bomb defused, we now know they are going to have to walk those out of the building. And Abraham is set up with the perfect shot to make sure the whole thing goes boom. You know what else is a blast? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Abraham Malaya was played by Manu Tupo. This is his second of five episodes. We also saw him in A Matter of Mutual Concern. As I said, David was played by Patrick ADRT, probably best known as Hojon on MASH. He also appeared in episodes of It Takes a Thief, Ironside, Bonanza, The Brady Bunch, and Kojak. He also appeared in the movies The King and I, High Time, Flower Drum Song, and John Goldfarb, Please Come Home. Samuel was played by Henry Ball. He appeared in episodes of Kojak, Little House on the Prairie, Lou Grant, Quincy, The Fall Guy, Tales of the Gold Monkey, Remington Steele, TJ Hooker, The New Mike Hammer, Hill Street Blues, Highway to Heaven, Jake and the Fat Man, Beauty and the Beast, Renegade, and Reasonable Doubts. He also appeared in the movies Doing Time... The Ghost Dance, Slow Dancing in the Big City, and Angry Joe Gas. And he appeared in the TV movies The Legend of Waxfar Woman, The Mystic Warrior, Blood and Orchids, and Island Sons. Marianne was played by Chris Callow. This is her first of two episodes. She also appeared in an episode of The Brady Bunch. Aiko was played by Jowden Kaneali. I butchered that. I'm so sorry. And this is his only credit. A superintendent was played by James McKierney. This is his first of three episodes. He also appeared in episodes of Magnum P.I. Kawa Malaya was played by Lippy Espinda. This is his sixth of 11 episodes. Mrs. Malaya was played by Javer Bowden. This is her only credit. Judy was played by Frances Asher. This is her first of two episodes. Ellsworth was played by Bo Vandenecker. This is his ninth of 21 episodes. Officer number one was played by Clarence Scanlon. This is his only credit. Officer number two was played by Charles Mellum. This is his only credit. 
And that is The Clock Struck Twelve. Aside from my issues with the foundation of this episode and the continued demonization of separatist movements and poor, poor hippies, it's actually a pretty enjoyable episode because it's fun watching Five O trying to break the security that they set up. And you also have this really well done tense bomb diffusing going on. This could be boring considering of how long we were involved in watching it. I mean, yes, we were cutting away to other stuff, but it could be kind of dull just watching Danny try to struggle with wires and what looks like popsicle sticks to try to defuse these two bombs. It was actually really engaging, probably because he was conversing with Che Fong. It was nice to see Che Fong and Danny working together on this. And there was the race against the clock element. So the race against time to get the bombs defused and out of the courthouse. And there's also that race against time of finding who these bombers are and capturing them, which proved to be critical at the end, given where Abraham was and what he was in the position to do. So even though I have issues with aspects of this episode, you should give it a watch. Uh, let's follow my life pattern. Start from the top, work my way down. Just take your time and tell us what happened. When I got home, Farrell was waiting for me. Wait a minute, Farrell, Farrell, the bookshop owner that you were surveilling? He put one of those Guantanamo hoods on my head and took me to a house somewhere and was questioning me. Kind of like Marathon Man, but without the dental abuse. And instead of torturing me, he was beating on this other guy. What, uh, what other guy? Who is he? I don't know his name, but he's in on the counterfeiting. killed him right in front of me it's all my fault season five episode six of the 2010 hawaii 50 ho oma ike air date october 31st 2014 directed by joe dante story by david wolkov teleplay by stephen lillian and brian winbrandt it's halloween and the trick-or-treaters are out in full force there's more tricks than treats happening in Thomas Farrow's home, however. See, Jerry Ortega has been doing unauthorized surveillance on Farrow, convinced he's a counterfeiter, and now Farrow has him tied to a chair in his dining room, so it would seem Jerry is onto something. Also tied to a chair in Fer is Farrow's associate, whom Farrow has been beating the hell out of in order to get Jerry to talk. He's not thrilled that the hired help didn't keep Jerry's nose out of his business. After he shoots his failed associate right in front of Jerry, Jerry has no trouble spilling all of the beans, specifically everything he told Steve McGarrett about Pharaoh's operation. Does this spell doom for Jerry? No! Pharaoh releases him and Jerry immediately goes to HPD, saying he'll only talk to Steve and Danny. Jerry relays everything that happened, including that Jerry told Pharaoh he told Steve everything, but Steve didn't believe him, and that Pharaoh is moving his counterfeit money tonight. Steve believes Jerry now. Danny is still on the fence. Jerry says he has proof, and only it turns out he doesn't. Pharaoh has gotten into Jerry's house and taken everything. This doesn't stop Steve. He goes to Assistant State Dis State's Attorney Ellie Clayton with Jerry and asks for a warrant. Given the fact that Jerry is a known conspiracy theorist and therefore considered unreliable, it's a tough ask, but she tries since she owes Steve one. The warrant doesn't come through, but that doesn't stop Steve and Danny from raiding Pharaoh's house while he's trying to eat dinner. There's no evidence of any murder, and Pharaoh swears he doesn't know Jerry. 
Steve apologizes for the mistake and they leave, but that's only so Steve can order a full HPD surveillance package on Pharaoh. There's definitely something shady about this guy, and now the game is on. Meanwhile, the rest of 5-0, Chin, Kono, and Grover, investigate the murder of a man found hanging in a restaurant freezer. He's been stabbed with what's later determined to be a sickle, and his tongue has been cut out. A connected corpse turns up on his sofa, this one with his eyes gouged out. The ME, Dr. Max Bergman, recognizes these two crimes in context and realizes they're copycat murders from an obscure slasher called Jackknife. The body count is rather low, only three victims. So 5-0 has to find the last victim before he loses his ears and his life. I usually try to pick episodes of the reboot that are more of a standalone and don't have so much previously on, but I was willing to make an exception for this episode because, while it's my show, I can do what I want. The only thing I've picked up on in my slapdash watch of the reboot is that they are dedicated to their Halloween episodes, and that's something I appreciate. As I said, this episode was directed by Joe Dante, and I know he directed several other episodes, including Halloween episodes. It's going to be a good time when the director of The Howling is on board. This episode has two stories. The A story is the culmination of a storyline that's been going on for a few episodes. Resident, tech guy, and conspiracy theorist Jerry is sure that book dealer Thomas Farrow is counterfeiting money. Steve doesn't believe him, so Jerry starts his own surveillance operation to gather evidence on Farrow, but apparently tips him off and ends up tied up in his dining room along with Farrow's failure of an associate. What I love about this is that the episode starts with Pharaoh answering the door for some trick-or-treaters, and he's got what looks like blood is on his, on his face. When they, one of the kids asks about it, he plays into the Halloween theme saying it's blood from the man he just killed, freaking the kids out, but then he tastes it and he's like, no, it's food coloring, corn syrup, and just a pinch of flour. That's how you make good fake blood, kids. Then he goes in the house puts on his meat cutter's apron, goes into the dining room, and there's Jerry and this other guy tied chairs. It's a nice opening swerve that sets up for a later swerve, which is really fun. But we'll get there. The situation actually looks pretty shitty for Jerry. Pharaoh has been beating the hell out of his failed associate because Jerry won't talk. Then he shoots the guy, and Jerry starts spilling all of his beans. But then he lets Jerry go. And Jerry heads straight to HPD, saying he'll only talk to Steve and Danny. So meanwhile, Steve and Danny are at some scenic overlook because Danny is still having feelings about his brother being murdered because his brother was Dane Cook and he made terrible life choices. Anyway, they go to talk to Jerry, and Jerry says that he told Pharaoh that he told Steve everything and that Steve didn't believe him. Now that he's been kidnapped and seen a man murdered in front of him, Steve had seems more convinced. Danny not so much, but he's Steve's partner, so he's along for the ride. Jerry takes them to his house to show him, show them the proof that he has and finds his whole basement cleared out, apparently by Farrell. Jerry, tell me the, uh, the movers already came and picked up your stuff. No. They're not coming until next week. This is Farrell. He took everything, my files, my backups, my backups and my backups. We must have backups someplace else. No, all my backups were here. This is my life's work. You had hours of recorded conversations. Surveillance photos, that's what Pharaoh's doing. You know that, right? He's destroying everything you had on him. 
So you believe me? Yeah. I, um... Timmy D. It's good enough for me. Now can we go arrest this guy? We then go through the formality of Steve and Jerry trying to get a warrant from the assistant state's attorney, Ellie Clayton, who agrees to try, even though it's a long shot because she owes Steve one. What she owes him, I don't know. That's outside of the random episodes I've seen. But from what I can piece together, Catherine is gone by this point and Ellie is being positioned to be Steve's next love object. But that's neither here nor there. They don't get the warrant, but they raid Pharaoh's house anyway, interrupting his dinner, but ultimately releasing him and leaving the house with an apology. Pharaoh does do a great job of acting like he doesn't know Jerry, and I appreciate that. But Steve notices that Pharaoh has scars on his arm from shrapnel, which leads him to believe that Pharaoh isn't who he seems. So they get this surveillance going, and in the meantime, Jerry starts digging into Pharaoh. He's pretty sure that he's former MI6, so he calls his British contact that he watches Doctor Who with. In the meantime, it looks like Pharaoh is moving the counterfeit money. Steve and Danny jump on it, only to find it's a van full of books. This guy is good. He's playing them hard, and Steve and Danny are doing everything he expects them to do. What he doesn't expect while he's sitting in the interrogation cell is for Jerry to come through with his identity. Never doubt a Doctor Who fan. It turns out that Pharaoh is really a former officer in the British Army who committed some war crimes by killing innocent civilians in Iraq as well as one of his own men. He's sweet. He then did a runner instead of go to his court-martial, and he's been living large under an assumed identity ever since. But the counterfeit cash isn't just for his own use. Oh no. He's actually using it to get back at his old government by funding the new IRA's war. Yes, this is a lot. So this leads them to a Belfast ship in the harbor that is preparing to sail away with the counterfeit cash, courtesy of... Pharaoh's presumed dead associate. Yes, Pharaoh and his henchmen staged the whole thing for Jerry's benefit and their gain. However, they're dealing with an incarnation of Steve McGarrett here. Steve and Danny and some other law enforcement folks raid the ship, kill the associate for real, seize the fake cash, and let Jerry have the last word as Pharaoh awaits his extradition. Checkmate. The episode ends with Steve running into former NFL player Eric Dickerson while buying bait. He gets a selfie to send to Danny to rub it in, which is kind of rude considering the guy is still recovering from his terrible brother being murdered. And then he goes home to go fishing with Ellie. The episode ending on a cute note of the two of them flirting and fishing and Ellie giving Steve shit about the warrant. I'm guessing they live happily ever after until she betrays him or gets murdered or just wanders off never to be heard from again. It's none of my business. Now, I like the A story line just fine. I have a special place in my heart for Jorge Garcia, who plays Jerry, and I love his conspiracy theory, computer nerd, all-around geek character. This is back when conspiracy theories were all about Area 51 and Bigfoot and shit, so Jerry was relatively harmless. And adorable. He is so sincere in his crime-fighting pursuits that it's hard to stay mad at him for conducting his own out-of-pocket investigation. However... The B storyline is a lot of fun, and I'm actually kind of sorry that it didn't get more screen time. It starts off with Shannon Grover talking about Halloween and trick-or-treating, and Grover's son going full ham for it as they're walking through this restaurant. Turns out that their corpse is in the meat freezer. It's rather cold in there. Gentlemen, the good news is our homicide victim is well-preserved. The bad news is below zero. We call it below zero in Chicago. April. I love how Chicago 
Grover is. He is a blessing. In the freezer, they find Kono with a corpse of some guy who has a name, but I didn't write it down, who'd been stabbed with what is later to be revealed as a sickle and had his tongue cut out. This leads them to suspect a possible mob or gang hit, but the dude is squeaky clean. Later, 5 is introduced to a second corpse. This one we see get offed by a masked creeper who kills the guy who has a name that I couldn't bother with with a sickle and gouges out his eyes. Delightful. He seems really swell. Anyway, it's at this murder scene that Max realizes he knows the killer. Sort of. It's a copycat killer from an old, rare slasher movie called Jackknife. Max then gives a detailed, critical analysis of the film because Max is precious and must be protected at all costs. One thing I love about Max is that he dresses as a Keanu Reeves character for every Halloween. This Halloween, he was dressed as Johnny Utah from Point Break, but in his football uniform, not his wetsuit. I loved watching him school Kono on that. Never doubt that man's dedication. And he also has dedication to slasher movies, which is an honorable and noble pursuit. Grover dismisses Max's background of the film, but he does have some valid observations. The movie is rare, so not just anyone could have access to it. And the character of Jackknife was considered an early horror anti-hero, particularly for the bullied. All right, look, I, I get the guy who sees Top Gun and wants to enlist, but what kind of lunatic sees a stupid slasher film and then identifies with a pumpkinhead killer? Oh, I can feel that one. Jack Knife is one of the first anti-heroes to emerge from the slasher film genre. Fred Krueger, Mike Myers, those were guys you ran away from. But in this day and age, with all the bullying, modern audiences tend to sympathize with Jack Knife. We are rooting for him to get his revenge. Remember that. You'll be quizzed on it later. The other key thing that Max mentions is that the film's body count is only three, and the third victim loses their ears as well as their life, so they gotta move fast. This leads Kono and Grover to the only video store that has copies of the movie, but none sold. However, there was a showing of the movie a couple of weeks prior. While the clerk goes to round up the email list of who might have possibly been at the screening, Kono gives Grover shit because it's become apparent that he's afraid of horror movies, and that's why he dislikes them so much. Look, you're a big, strong guy, and you're afraid of horror movies. Oh, There's no judgment, no judgment. I don't watch them because they insult my intelligence. Even if you're scared, Grover, that jackknife mask is pretty sweet and free. You should have taken it. Anyway, one thing that 5-0 finds that connects the victims is that they were in the same class in high school, and they just happened to be in school a couple of years ahead of our beloved Kamikona, whom outs the two guys to chin as bullies. They ran with a third guy who was even worse, and his name was Brad Weiss. Unfortunately, HPD calls Brad a little late. The jackknife killer wounds Brad Weiss with the sickle, ties into a makeshift scarecrow prop, and cuts off his ears. Fortunately, 5 and HPD arrives just in time to save his life, but jackknife gets away. Brad No Ears didn't see who did this to him, but he knows it was Sam Cole. You see, when Brad and his buddies were being pieces of shit in high school, they watched the jackknife movie, and Brad decided that it would be a great idea to take Sam out, strip him naked, tie him up to a scarecrow prop, and leave him overnight. They did feel bad about it the next day when they went to cut Sam down and he was still crying, but the damage had been done. Sam was so damaged that he gave up on living up to his potential and a gas station job was the best that he could do. 5 goes looking for Sam only to find out that it wasn't Sam seeking vengeance, but his son Aaron, using the movie against the bullies who'd used it against his father. See? 
I told you there was a quiz. There's also a twist. Aaron was seeking vengeance, but not for his father. It was for himself. Because of what those bullies did to his father, his father failed to live up to his potential, thereby sentencing Aaron to a life of poverty. And he puts his father where he belongs, bloodied and strung up on a scarecrow prop in the yard. You know what? He's a terrible son. Sam deserves better people in his life. The confrontation between Kono and Aaron is pretty great because Aaron is a gigantic entitled dick holding a sickle and Kono is standing there with a friggin' AR-15 and he thinks he's going to win. Thank God for him that Grover knocked his ass out. Kono was going to prove that the killer in a horror movie doesn't always get that final jump scare. It really is the B story that makes this episode for me because it appeals to my love of horror films and it does it with a lot of fun considering we're dealing with dramatic bullying and severed body parts. Well, severed body parts can be fun if the parts aren't yours. And I think this episode is fun too. Well, that's how you end a horror movie. And that is episode 57 of Bookum Dano. Given the very different nature of these episodes, they both actually have fun elements to them. I think it's a lot of fun watching Danny and Ben try to break the security that 5.0 has set up. And I think the beat story in the 2010 Hawaii 5.0 episode with them trying to hunt down a slasher copycat killer, I think that's a good time too. So yeah, if you can get past the traumatic elements of both episodes, hey, it's a blast. And it's always a blast to have you listening. Thank you, as always. You know I appreciate your ears. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookum Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Do check out the Patreon. You could be listening to these episodes at least two weeks before everyone else. And if you need my explosive thoughts in real time and you can't find me on the hell site formerly known as Twitter, you can find me on Blue Sky at Kiki Writes. So don't be afraid to nope out on felonious plans and hang on to your copies of those vintage slasher films. Until next time. Aloha!